Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone here today on this Lord's Day, and uh, we're going to continue this series on the life of Christ, and um, today we're going to be talking about, um, from, from John chapter 4, focusing on 5 to 26, but a, ver- a chapter that probably every Sunday school uh, lesson has talked about, the woman at the well, but we're going to look at it from some different perspectives and, and see what the Lord has for us today. So let's open with some prayer and, uh, and, and just uh, rely on him that he helps me to give, uh, be faithful to the word and that we would have ears to hear. Father God, we thank you for this morning that we can come together, that this morning that when we breathed in uh, our breath, that it was breathing in your mercy. And we, uh, we thank you that you are sovereign and in control of all things, and that uh, all things are working for our good and for your glory, that we might have situations happening in our lives, we may have struggles, we may have trials and tribulations, but you are in the midst of us, you are with us, you are guiding us, and you are leading us, and one day we will spend eternity with you when you will wipe away every tear from our eye. And we thank you for every person here today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be talking about uh, the woman at the well, as I mentioned. And we're going to be focusing uh, John chapter 4, 5 through 26. And since it's a lot of verses, I'm not going to read the whole thing at one time. We're kind of going to break it down. And, uh, and so as I mentioned, this was something that every Sunday school teacher talks about, the woman at the well. Um, it's a wonderful story, and of course, there's this beautiful story about a, a woman that encounters Jesus, and in spite of uh, who she is and her past, that Jesus reaches out to her. But we're going to be digging in a little bit more and seeing where, where, what else the Lord is trying to tell us uh, in, in these verses. And so what we're seeing in, is this, uh, and John is kind of p- painting this picture for us, that that we, Jesus is God. He says in chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that He was the Creator. Uh, and then we see in John chapter 3, Jesus is now encountering, uh, talking with the people. He's, he's talking to a Pharisee. He says, how, how, do I, how do I gain eternal life? And he says, you must be born again. Uh, and then he says at the end of that chapter, in chapter 3, he talks about how that... Uh, that those that believe obey, and those that don't obey have the wrath of God abiding upon them. And so he is preaching hard. He's not playing around. He's, he's preaching the gospel. Uh, he's healing people. But even that is all, all because he has compassion on the people, of course, but also because he's revealing to them, I'm not just a man. I am divine. I am God in the flesh. And so John the Baptist, he says, I must decrease so that he must increase, and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God. We talked about that the last time I was here. And so knowing the hearts of the Pharisees that now Jesus is getting some fame, people are starting to know his name and who he is, and they're saying that they're baptizing more than the disciples of John, even though that Jesus did not baptize, it was the disciples. And so Jesus and his his sovereign will that controls all things. He, he controls the narrative, and he says, all right, my time is not yet. I have a plan here. I have a ministry to, to, to unfold, and so they're going to try to, they're, they're trying to see what I'm up to, and they're going to start hating me really quickly, 
when they start seeing what I'm preaching and what's going on. And so I'm going to depart. I'm going to go to another place and, and kind of go uh, and preach in another area. And so this leads them to uh, another place uh, in, in Samaria. And so this is interesting facts that the ancient Israel was divided into three main regions. Um, and so we see that we have Galilee to the north. You can kind of see that on the map there. Uh, you can see Samaria in the center, and you can see Judah, also known as Judea, uh, to the south. And in verse 3, it says, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now this is interesting, that word right there, had to pass. Because he says, so they came to the city of Samaria, they come to this, this town within Samaria, and, uh, and this is a, where this field was, where Jacob had given this to Joseph. But the word uh, he had to pass in the Greek, because the New Testament was written in the Greek, is very interesting. It means that he was bound. He was, he was tied to an object. He was bound to go. It was like if you bound someone up and you tie them up. And it makes that much more profound when you really think about what he's trying to say there. I am bound to go, I have to go to Samaria. And John 3, 7, it says, Do not be amazed that I said to you that you must, there's the same Greek word, be born. You must be bound and be born again. John 3, 14, it says, Even so must, that same Greek word, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And John 3, 30, he must increase so that I must decrease says John the Baptist. So we see that Greek, that, that being bound. And then in verse 4-4, four, four, he says, and he must go to Samaria. Now there's some things that are very interesting about this fact that he would say that I'm bound to go to Samaria. The fact is that Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them with a passion that to the point that if they would marry, if someone would marry a person from Samaria, they would have a funeral instead of a wedding. Like, that's how much the families hated the Samaritans, just like they hated the Gentiles. And this was animosity that had gone on for generations. Uh, the Samaritans uh, had mixed with the Israelites, and they mixed with these pagan practices. They had idolatry and, and all sorts of pagan practices going on. They built a temple that was to their false gods, and they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, and so they denied the other scriptures. I mean, there was all sorts of things going on of pagan practices, and so they looked at them as, as second-class citizens. They looked at them as, uh, as just, they were reviled. They hated them. And so for Jesus to say, I'm bound to go to Samaria, is very interesting, because you can see on the map that if he's going from Judea, he could go and cut straight through from, through Samaria to, to Galilee, and that would take about, it's about 70 miles, it's about two and a half days of travel. And now that's not an easy trip to do. It's still hot, it's still, it's still tiresome, you're walking for two and a half days, and there's no Ubers or anything like that going on, so they, it's, a, it's a hard travel. But the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would take the trip around Samaria. So you're talking about there would, it would be double or triple the amount of time, and it would be long, hard roads that they would have to get to. It was hotter. It was, it was more uncomfortable. And that's how much they hated these people, that they were willing to not even go through. And the other fact is, is that Samaria was also a kind of a, a safe haven for all the criminals from Israel as well. 
they would, all the people that were excommunicated for uh, breaking the laws of, of the Jews and also other criminals would find safe haven in this city as well. So they wouldn't want to go through this place. And so we see that this is something very interesting that's taking place that Jesus says, I must go to these people. I, I have, I'm drawn to them. I, I don't care what, what society says. I don't care what culture says. Christ over culture. I care about them and who they are, and I have a plan for their lives, and so I'm going to them. I'm tearing down all the walls of, of animosity and hatred, and I'm showing love and compassion to these people. And the question I would ask is, who's your Samaritan in your life? I mean, we could easily say that, yeah, who's the person that you are not willing to evangelize to or disciple or invite to church or to take time and spend with them and invite them to your house, maybe because they look different from you, they come from a different background, different culture, maybe it's because they have disabilities and, and you don't know how to interact with them, but also sometimes we're just plain out selfish. We just don't want to evangelize, and we, we almost like, I only care about if I'm making it to heaven, but I don't care so much about them. As long as I'm good with God, I'm, 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 I'm going to keep my personal relationship with Jesus and be a closet Christian and I'm going to keep it to myself. And, and that's a really a sinful behavior. And so that's something to meditate on. Who is your Samaritan? And, and how can you change that? How can you change and open up and, and be able to reach out to those that maybe are the unreachable those who are the outcast, those that you may have animosity with for some reason. And so what we see here is that this story reflects God's plan of redemptive history, that we are unlovable. Every single one of us deserve hell. Every one of us have sinned and broken the law of God, and God is just, and he is, would be just to send everyone to hell. Otherwise, he would be unjust. So either your sins have to be paid for by the sacrifice of Christ, or, by the, the, your, or you have to pay for it in hell. All of us are sinners. <clears throat> we, de we deserve only rejection and condemnation. And God made a plan in eternity past to redeem a people, to reconcile those who are his enemies. I mean, that is so profound when you think about that, that we're made in the image of God, and yet you see Ephesians chapter 2, and it says that you were children of wrath. You were... You were also, you see in, in Romans, it says you were once enemies, but now you have been reconciled with God. And I always talk about this one hymn, and there's a line in it that I love, and it says that I was once your enemy, now I'm seated at your table. I mean, it's just a beautiful illustration of what we see in the Revelation as well as we're studying in, in the morning. And so we see that he also came to make them his bride, to make him, them his cherished possession. And this is something that I want us to really focus on. What we see in verses chapter 6 and 8. Let me see if I have to go backwards, I guess. Sorry. Um, in 6 and through 8 is that he comes to Samaria. There's this fork in the road and there's a well. It's called Jacob's Well. Uh, this is about the sixth hour, which is about noonday, so it's hot he just got done walking two and a half hours to this place. This is the same uh, plot of land, <clears throat> excuse me, the same plot of land where we see in Genesis 29, Isaac's son Jacob found his future wife at this well around this area. Um, Jacob bought this land in Genesis 33. On his deathbed, he gave the land to Joseph in Genesis 48. 
After Joseph died in Egypt, the body was buried there in Joshua 24. And there's some interesting facts about this well, is that this well was about 100 feet deep. And so you had to have something to get water out of this well. But it was not a flowing well. It was not a spring that was bubbling up and flowing and constant flow, had a constant flow. It, w- it was water that percolated out of the ground into this water well. And so this was something very interesting as Jesus is now going to be talking about living water. That you also see that even he uses the well as a way to show how much they need him. And so we see also this connection between the story of Isaac and Rebekah. You may recall in Genesis 24 that God uh, promises Isaac that he'll be uh, his, Isaac's father, Abraham, that he will be a great nation. But Abraham doesn't have children. He's old. But God performs a miracle, and we see that Isaac is, comes on the picture, and now, now God is going to use Isaac to fulfill his promises that he'll make him into a great nation. And so Abraham sends his servant and, and into this foreign land to find a bride for his son. And we see this connection where God the Father, God the Father chose the people for, for himself. He, he said, I'm gathering a people that will be holy. We see in Peter, it talks about we're a holy nation, that you were once not my people, now you're my people. And God sent his the servant. We see that in Isaiah, it talks about Jesus being the suffering servant. And he goes, not only the suffering servant, but the son of God. And he travels to this foreign land in Samaria to find the bride, this woman that will end up becoming part of the church who we will spend eternity with. It's an amazing picture of a love story of God redeeming a people and bringing them to himself. We see Jesus providentially puts everything into place for this divine encounter, not only for the good of this woman and her people, but as an example for us today. Jesus came to her. She didn't seek him. He, he's talking with the enemies of the Jews. He's speaking with a woman, which was unheard of. Jesus was not, was, has nothing to draw the water from a hundred-foot deep well, and yet what he is doing is actually drawing her to himself. And we see this as we get into verses 9 through 14. And he, he approaches this woman, and it says, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus answered her, If you only knew the gift of God, who, is, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water not percolating water out of the ground. I'll give you something a little bit better than what you're asking for. He said to, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered, her, answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I give him will become in him water, well, a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, she understands the divisions between the Jews and the Samaritans. And on top of that, she's a woman. 
And the thing is that they had these divisions between the northern and southern kingdoms, as I mentioned, the, between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it was stronger than ever after 400 years of animosity. And for a rabbi to, to speak to a woman, this was forbidden in, to speak to a woman in public. I mean, he could not even speak to his own wife or his daughter or his sister in public. That's how serious it was. And there was actually some Pharisees that they, would be, they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And the reason was is because they would shut their eyes every time they saw a woman in the street and they would run into the walls. And so they were called the bruised and bleeding uh, Pharisees. And for a rabbi to speak to a woman in public ended his reputation, especially an impure woman such as this woman. However, she asked the wrong question. She says, how do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? And Jesus said, if you knew the gifts of God, if you knew who you were talking to right now, if you, you only see a man, you, you called me sir. See, you don't even know who you're talking about. You don't know, you're talking to God in the flesh right now. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one that designed the rocks that are now creating this well. The water that's percolating from within is the one that I put there many years ago. I'm the one who put the stars in the place. I'm the one that, that every time the wave comes to the shoreline and the Sea of Galilee and it stops right at one point and returns because I have all authority over these things. If you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking a different question. And so this is what he says. And if you would have said, give me a drink, I, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she still doesn't get it. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have nothing to, to get water out of this well. She's still not getting this. And so we see here, she asks once again, are you greater than our father Jacob? And the, question, the answer to that question, of course, is that he is greater He's greater than your ancestors. He's greater than all your pleasures. He's greater than your idols. He's greater than all the sources of life because he is the source of life. And Jesus replies, yes, I am thirsty. Yes, it's hot outside. I had a two and a half day walk journey. But I came here to suffer so that you may have eternal life. I've come here to draw you to me. You're right, I don't have anything to draw out of the water, but that's not why I'm here. See, I've come here to draw you to me. And everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. And the well that you're sitting at right now, the Holy Spirit that I would give you, will be a well within you that will give you new life and will be eternal life. And so we see this betrothal See, it's interesting in the, in the times of the Old Testament, the ancient times, when the, the marriage ceremony, the betrothal, which we would call engagement, was as if you were actually married. And so there was a, a, it was, this was a commitment between that, 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 uh, the fiancés, as we would call them. But also there was a price that they would have to pay for the bride. It was a dowry. And they would actually go and they would have to pay a, a price. I, I, met, I might have mentioned this years ago at a, in a message, but when I was in Africa, they asked me, how much did I uh, pay for my wife? And I was like, 
nothing? Should I talk to my father-in-law? <laughs> like, she's like, he's like, yeah, I paid a goat for my wife. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> but in the cultural sense, it made sense to them. And so what we see here is that Jesus paid the price for his bride, the church. And this is what we're seeing, this, this, this interaction with this woman. And so the woman says to him, sorry about that, I don't know what happened with that. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I would not be thirsty nor come back to this here to draw. She's still not getting it yet. She's still not getting what he's referring to. See, Jesus told her what the water represented, the well of water springing up to eternal life, and she still didn't get it. And then the Old Testament prophesied it, and the New Testament confirms it. Isaiah 49.10 says, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And those that reject this living water, those who reject Christ, the Old Testament also talks about that. Jeremiah 17, 13, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of, of living water, even Yahweh. And then Revelation 7, 16 paints this beautiful picture. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor scorch any scorching heat. Revelation 21, 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give them, give from the spring of water of life without payment. Jesus paid it all. However, she was still holding back. She's not getting it. And she's holding back and she's asking for water, physical water, so she don't have to come back to this well. But Jesus is done with the vague talking. He's like, all right, this exchange is going back and forth now. Let's cut this out. Let's, get, let's cut to the chase, as they would say, right? Let's, let's get to the point. Let's get what we're, what we're trying to get to. Let's, let's make the, the, the real thing the real thing. Let's do it right now. And he says, gets to the point, and we see that he now confronts her sin and reveals her need for a Savior. And this is Evangelism 101. The gospel is good news. It's the power to save, but it must be confronted with our sins. Because the fact is that people don't think they're sinners. They think they're all pretty much a good person. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that guy. So I'm not as bad as the Samaritan guy. So I might go to heaven. I think I'm all right. And so that we see that. So part of the gospel is to confront sin, as we see Jesus do. And so this, this will burst faith and repentance and, and a hatred for our sin and a desire for holiness. And, and so we see just as Abraham's servant went to the foreign land to find Isaac a wife, Jesus went to this foreign land to meet with this woman, but we see a difference between these two scenarios right here. We look at Genesis 24, 16 through 19 about Rebecca, the woman who will be the wife of Isaac that's sitting at the well. And the servant goes and he says, God, give me a sign. If this woman offers me a drink, but not only me, but also all of my animals. Now this would take, they drink gallons and gallons of water. This is the, for a camel. And so this would take several hours to do. It's so it's a, it's a generous act to do, to, especially for a stranger and especially someone from a foreign land. And so we see in Genesis, we see this young woman. She's beautiful in appearance. She's a virgin. No man had known her. 
And she went down to the spring and filled a jar and came up. And then a servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered the jar to her hand and gave him a drink. And now she went, after she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. And so we see that she was a pure and she was a virgin. She had never known a man. She was the perfect woman. She was beautiful. And she didn't just ask the servant to, if, you, if he wanted the drink. She, and she didn't call him sir. She said, my Lord. There was a, a higher reverence that she had, even that the Samaritan woman didn't have for Jesus. And then she gives water to, to the animals. She didn't say, you don't have anything to draw from. Why are you asking me? Why don't you do it yourself? She didn't say that. The servant asked for a sign, and God prepared Rebecca's heart so that she would respond to God's will. The Samaritan woman, Jesus tells her, go call your husband and come back here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said you have no husband, for you have five husbands. And the one that's now your husband is not your husband. This is the one that you have truly said the truth. He's making some, he's confronting sin now. He's saying, all right, you have done some things in your life. You've been looking for love in all the wrong places. You've been trying to find satisfaction in men after men after men. And the man that you're living with now, you're living in sin with. You're in fornication. And the fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. And she is broken at this thought that he's just exposed her sins. She was tainted, impure, used, and an outcast. I mean, you think about it, she came to the well by herself. This was, the well was a common practice for women to get together and have a good conversation and hang out. It was the Facebook of their time. <laughs> so they would, they would go and hang out in a group, and they would, but she's by herself. She probably was this outcast even among the Samaritan women. And here we see just like you and I, that he drew us, the church, the bride of Christ. He didn't pick the holy and the pure. and the, He said, I didn't come for the ones that are, what, healthy? He came for the ones that were sick. And so he came for this woman who was tainted, who had a history behind, that she had behind herself. She had a past. She had did some things in her life. And he's chose her, and he's drawing her to himself, just as he did for us. And here we see the servant, Jesus Christ, also the Son of God, drawing his bride. And the Father elects and sends his Son to gather his bride. Christ exposes our sins, yet offers us grace. His Spirit draws us and sanctifies us to take that which was impure and unlovable and conforms us to the image of God. This is the beautiful story of the gospel in this story of the well. And we see in verses 19 through 26, there's some confusion here. She's, the woman said to him, Sir, I see you're a prophet. She still doesn't get it quite yet who he is. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. And he goes on to say, but an hour is coming, and now it is, 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And a woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. That's also the Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I, I who speak to you am he. And what we're seeing here, there's a strange question that she's asking about where to worship. The Samaritans had adjusted history to suit themselves. They taught that it was the Mount uh, Gerizim where, the Mount, where Abraham had went to sacrifice Isaac and where Melchizedek had appeared to Abraham and where Moses had first entered an altar. They made a temple there instead of in Jerusalem. It was like the, rather than going and, and worshiping the true God in Jerusalem, they built their own temple and did their own things and had their own idolatry and they would mix a little bit of the true God in there too, just like we see in a lot of churches today. And so we see that they had tampered with the scriptures. They also only believed the first five books of the, the scriptures, and so they, they denied the rest of the scriptures. And so she's saying, all right, you have just exposed my sins. I'm an adulterer. I'm a fornicator. I'm living with a man right now, and I don't know what to do. I need to worship. I need to make a sacrifice, but I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Tell me what I need to do. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I need to do something. Where do I go? Where do I find God? And so Jesus goes and says, Jesus, God is spirit. He doesn't doesn't need your buildings. He doesn't need, we don't need to, you don't need to come down an altar. You don't need to do this. Repent. Repent and believe. Do it now. Now is the time to do it. Now is the time. But also we see this, there's something profound here that he's saying. It's, he's pointing to a time when he's talking about the last days where Jesus ushered in the last days. And we see that in, in Joel that he talks about the pouring of the Spirit upon men, women, young and old from every tribe, people, language and nation. And those who I draw, Jesus says, those who come to me I will be saved and I will fill them with my Holy Spirit and they will become and it will become in them a well springing up to eternal life. And God is not bound by buildings and temples and objects. He doesn't need those things. He needs, he needs true worshipers. And false worship is based on selective worship, picking and choosing what they want to believe about God. That's why we see people that say, Jesus is my homeboy or God is dope. I don't know if you've ever seen those, pit, those shirts. That's a, they have a wrong image of God. He's not the big man in the sky. He is the sovereign creator of all things that could crush you at any moment, but yet by his grace that he has sustained you and he saved you. Then we see other aspect of false worship that it can be a chore or an obligation. It's, it's it's, It's without devotion or gratitude. False worship can be superstitious. If I do this, I'll get this from God. John Piper once said, missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason why Christ had to come, the reason why we have to go and evangelize is because people don't worship God, because they worship themselves, or they worship a false God, or a false version of Jesus, that Jesus is all love and, and, and all grace, but is not a God of justice and wrath. And so missions exist because worship doesn't. She was looking for the Messiah. She was looking for God. She saw her sinfulness but didn't know where to go. And she had spent her entire life trying to fill the void with men. 
She had, and Jesus said, everything you have been searching for, you're going to find in me. I am he who reconciles you to God, who will lay down my own life for you. As Ephesians chapter 5 says about what husbands are to do for their wives, it says, love your wife like Christ loves the church, his bride, that he's willing to even lay down his life for her. He's talking to this woman. He's, he's interacting with this woman that is going to be, he's drawing her to become part of the church, his bride. And he's saying, I'll die for you. I'll love you like no one else will ever love you. I will give you everything that you want. And everything that you think you want is not what you really need. I'll give you what you actually need. And what you really need is a new heart. You need a new way of thinking. You need to repent and believe that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And rest in me. Cling to me. And in me you'll find everything. And so he's the one that will purify, changing her rags to riches, the rags to righteousness, who will fill her with the Spirit, who will make her his bride, who will pay the price on her behalf, that she will not pay for the, her sins, that he will do it on the cross, and that he will love her like no one else, and he will come again, and he will gather her together with the rest of his bride to spend eternity together. And there is no such thing as a closet Christian where a relationship with Christ is so personal that no one knows about it. She proclaimed Christ to the Samaritans, and many believed. And just as Abraham's servant stayed with the family of Rebekah, Jesus stayed with the Samaritans for two days preaching the gospel. And their response to the woman was, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. That was the end result of these people that were once the enemies of this Jewish man who is actually God in the flesh, and they called him the Savior of the world, the cosmos, every people group within the world. The father chose his bride for his son, Christ the suffering servant, and the Son of God sought out his bride. He laid down his life for take, for, and taken upon himself the punishment that she deserved and rose again that so she may live life eternally. And before his ascension in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they shall be his witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And this is interesting. If you look at that map, it's like a perfect circle. If You see what's happening there. So you see in that map that there's a framework that, he, that Jesus is giving us. That the, this, this outpouring started in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Peter's preaching. He's preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 3,000 come to Christ. And then there's persecution that come, takes place that pushes them out of their comfort zones. Pushes them out of their comfort of saying, this is all only for the Jews. And he pushes them into the outskirts to Judea and to Samaria. They begin to preach the gospel there, reuniting the northern and southern kingdoms under the banner of Christ. And from there, the gospel went forth to the ends of the earth, reaching you and I and countless other people from every people group and every nation 
all around this earth. And so we see in Revelation the fulfillment of this. In Revelation 22.1, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we see the fulfillment of this outpouring that spread out and reached you and I. And it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. And there no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But we see also in Revelation where he says that come to the banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. And he says that those that he had drawn to himself had washed their robes They have taken off their robes of sinfulness and now are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And they were welcomed at the table, the banquet, the wedding feast, and they were part of the bride of Christ to dwell with him for all of eternity. The story of the woman at the well goes much deeper than what our Sunday school lessons often teach, that it was pointing to Christ drawing this woman to become his bride, just as he did for you and I. So let us pray. Father God, I thank you for this time that we can come together and just study your word. It is amazing as we begin to examine what your word speaks and says and how everything ties and connects together that all of redemptive history, even from the Old Testament, was pointing to Christ, pointing to our need for a Savior and that this was part of your plan from the beginning was to separate a people to be your bride, to be pure and to be holy and pleasing to you so that we may dwell for all eternity with you, bringing glory and honor and praise for all of time. And that this living water we can enjoy here and now, but also we will enjoy in eternity when we will have no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, and we'll be free and free to worship as we were designed to be, to do. In Jesus' name, 